Um, but we're going to continue with our, our series in First and Second Timothy um, called Entrusted. And so turn to the book of Second Timothy, if you would. Second Timothy chapter 2. We're going to be covering verses 14 through 19. And I'll, I'll have you stand in a minute. But just a, a word about the content this morning. Um, I, I entitled the message, if you can, you can see it on your notes in the worship folder, uh, Words Matter. Words matter, the unashamed worker and the approval of God. And so I, I feel especially um, as I preach or teach the word of God um, that there's a part of me that's like fearful and trembling at what is required um, of me. I'm, I'm attempting to tell you what God has told us and explain it. And so there is a, a sense of fear and trembling in that as well. But maybe even more in the books of First and Second Timothy written to um, a leader in the church, um, a, a personal letter uh, with some very specific instructions. And, and so I don't come to you this morning as the one who has arrived. Um, my authority does not derive from my uh, experience or my uh, incredible character this morning. Um, my authority comes because of the Word of God. And my authority comes from this word, and so I want to humbly this morning approach the topic of speech. Um, I have, during the study of this passage, been very convicted of my speech, and there's a lot of it that comes out of this mouth, and some of you are, are like me. Um, but to, to remember that uh, I'm not here to impress anybody. Um, I, I'm not here to speak uh, eloquent words. Um, I'm here to, to speak the word of God. And that is what we're, we're to do as a people, to share the word of God. Um, we should not rely on eloquence or our superior arguments to win people. We should um, depend on the power and authority of God in his word. And so that is my, kind of my preface to this morning as we, as we all think about our words um, and how we speak to one another. So w- with that being said, would you please stand um, in honor of the reading of God's word. Again, um, if you haven't gotten there yet, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. So if you would follow along with me as we read the words of God. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are confronted with the truth. And when we are confronted with the truth, it is easy to make light of it, to turn away from it, especially when it stings. But this morning, Lord, I pray that we would hear what you have to say to us. And more than that, that we would let it settle into our hearts and that it would transform us um, from the newest Christian in the room to those who have been Christians for decades. 
May this morning be a reminder that our words matter and that more than that, your word matters. And that we would strive to be those who are approved by you, that we would not have any reason to be ashamed. Lord, that we might be the bearers of good news, of good words to a lost and dying world that needs your word. So this morning, God, I pray that you would impress this upon our hearts and teach us and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated, and you'll be helped by the notes in your worship folder to follow along. I, I think of the Old Testament. Um, I love the Old Testament, and I am grieved when um, Christians stay away from it because it's too hard or too old or too boring. And I think one of the, the best pictures that we get from the Old Testament is the contrast between the God of Israel and the gods of the people. In fact, many places throughout the scriptures, there's a, there's a specific contrast made between our God, between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and the gods of the Canaanites, the gods of the Babylonians, the gods of the Assyrians. And the major thing that you will find in those passages of contrast is that our God speaks. That is the defining characteristic that says this is the God of Israel and these are the fake gods of the nations. Our God speaks. You'll also notice as you read through a famous document called the Ten Commandments that the second commandment says that we should not make or the Israelites should not make any carved image that looks like a beast or something that crawls on the earth or a bird in the sky. Uh, One of the major things that is another contrast between the God of Israel and the gods of the peoples is that the gods of the peoples are represented in images, idols, pictures, reptiles, beasts. And the God of Israel is not represented by by any image. In fact, what we know about the God of Israel is only what he has spoken and what he speaks to us in his words. And so to Christians more than any other religion in the world, words matter. This is the Bible, but we also call it commonly the word of God. When Jesus is sent to this earth, John 1 says that the word was God. The word was with God. And this is an important fact of our religion, that we are a people of the book. That more than anything, the words of our God govern our lives. Not our experiences, not our feelings. Those have their place. And those are seen throughout the scriptures. But the primary thing that we adhere to are the words of Almighty God. And this drives us. And this is important because we are a people of words. We've restricted them. On Twitter, you can only have 140 characters. Um, we've generally shrunk down the, the size, the amount of words that we want to interact with, but we are still a people of the word. And so a picture is great, and a picture says a lot, but a picture is worth a thousand words. <laughs> and so we see the importance of words, and that is covered throughout this chunk of scripture that we're going to cover today. And in fact, if you've been paying attention through all First Timothy and Second Timothy, words have become very important. So let's look at the first point covered in the first two verses, and that is the unashamed worker handles words accurately and helpfully. The unashamed worker handles words accurately and helpfully. And we'll see this, first of all, in verse 14, 
remind them of these things. And, and we've seen this, past, this word before. These things occurred seven times in 1 Timothy. As Paul says, these things. He points them back to these things. So what are these things? What is Timothy to remind them of in verse 14? Well, I think that he's to remind them of what came before. Take a look at verses 11 through 13. Paul just gave Timothy a trustworthy saying, a, a creed or a confession or perhaps a hymn. Um, you'll see in a lot of your Bibles, it's set out from the rest of the, of the prose. It's, it's set into lines of poetry. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Letter A in your notes, we need to be consistently reminded of the core doctrines of our faith. We need to be consistently reminded of the core doctrines of our faith. How many of you have been Christians for at least three decades? Look at all those hands. Does it get boring sometimes? Probably if we're honest, yes, but... How many of us are amazed at seeing the Word of God come alive in a way we've never seen before, even though we've read that passage a million times? Isn't that, isn't that, isn't that great? You see it for, for the, what it is for a, in a new way. And that is because we need to be reminded because we're so forgetful. And, and not just cognitively. We might remember a saying. We might remember a formula. We might remember whatever. But the question is, do you remember it in such a way as to put it into practice? Do you remember it in a way that means I know this and therefore I will live like this? And so Paul immediately tells Timothy, remind them of these things. To tell the people of God the core doctrines of the faith. And this is not a suggestion. This is not, you know, something that might be helpful for you as a pastor, Timothy, is if you remind the people of these things. This is an imperative. It is a command. And it's also in the present tense, so it might be said, you must continually remind. That would be a a helpful way of translating it. You must continually remind the people of these things. So let me urge you, no matter how old you are, you're not too old, too experienced, too knowledgeable for Sunday school. You're not too old, too knowledgeable, too well-versed in the scriptures to not go through them again with your children. You don't know the scriptures well enough to ignore going through them with the people in this church. We need to be reminded of the core doctrines of our faith. We don't check it off a list and kind of throw it in the back of our mind and come back to it every once in a while. We need to be consistently reminded because we live in a world that reminds us of the exact opposite. You are the most important thing in the world. Satisfy your desires God does not exist. God did not create. And so we battle that by reminding ourselves of the core doctrines of our faith. Paul wants Timothy in this context to remind a church that is just split apart by controversy and heresy to go back to the core doctrines, to be reminded of what matters most. And what matters most is a set of words that tells us what we believe. How do we know what we believe? Do we go sit out in nature and wait till a feeling stirs up within us? I like warm and fuzzies. I I like them. They're good. They're God-given. But they're not what we base our beliefs on. They're not what we base our lives as Christians on. 
the words of God are what we base our lives on. And so we must be reminded, and that is um, primarily the elders' job, the pastor's job to remind the people, but it filters down from there. In Deuteronomy 6, the famous Shema, to, to, to love the Lord your God, is then followed by parents, teach these to your children. The, the command is repeat these words. There's a, there's a phrase and these words need to be impressed upon them. When? When you rise up, when you lay down, when you're walking by the way, all the time. A reminding of these words. I, I'm, I, I'm um, reminded of this because uh, my little girl is in cubbies now. And so um, she's going through a book and, and memorizing scripture. And uh, I went through cubbies and sparks and went up to sixth grade. And I'm being reminded of the importance of the scriptures. And the cubbies don't get complicated passages. I don't know if you know that, but they're, they're very simple. Um, but the simple words of God, even in my daughter's cubbies book, sometimes jump off the page. How important it is to know the words of God and to be reminded of them over and over again. How dare we approach this book and say, I already read that. I already know that. I learned it in third grade. Okay, <laughs> you're not in third grade anymore. Perhaps it applies in a different way. Um, perhaps the living words of God should not be ignored in that way. Well, uh, letter B is going to get us into a category uh, of wars of words. And you'll, you'll see that in the, the next part of verse 14. He tells him to remind them of these things, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words. So I want to talk a little bit here in, in point B about wars of words about arguments, about fighting, about getting heated about words. Um, And this is important for us because being argumentative is the attribute that most typifies the false teachers in 1st and 2nd Timothy. So if you went this afternoon, and this would be a good idea, maybe you should do it, grab your Bible and read 1st and 2nd Timothy all the way through in one sitting, you will notice that Paul continually and more often than anything else, warns Timothy about the words and the fighting about them that the false teachers are doing. The false teachers are embattling the congregation. They're, they're bringing the congregation to wars of words. And this is a thing that Paul warns Timothy very um, strongly about. At the outset, though, this is important because this can be, this can be misunderstood. Uh, Paul is not saying that arguing is wrong. Okay? So, so if, if it comes to an argument, we're not immediately to, oh, we're arguing. We need to be very careful. One of the commentators said this, Paul is saying that Timothy should not argue about words and arguing that results only in uselessness and ruin. Paul is not saying that arguing is wrong in and of itself. There is a, a place and a time for arguing. What is Paul doing? He's telling Timothy to speak better words to the people than the false teachers are. And so there must be a conflict and, and arguments But they must be done in the right way and over the right things. And we know this. How many of you have been in an argument over what someone has said and you're using one word one way and they're using the same word a different way and you're just totally missing each other? Anybody ever had that problem? That's why we need to set definitions of words before arguing. If I think this word means this and you think this word means this and we're arguing about the same word, we're going to go round and round and round until we're all just huffing and puffing and angry at each other without having accomplished anything. However... Paul, throughout the book of Acts, is arguing, persuading, debating for the truth of God's word. So we must not, on the one hand, uh, kind of 
move away from standing up for the scriptures. On the other hand, we don't need to be argumentative people that are always, always, always fighting about words. And this is the warning that Paul gives. And so point number one there is um, wars of words are serious matters. Wars of words are serious matters. How do we know this? Well, verse 14, Paul tells Timothy not only to remind them, but secondly, to charge them before God or in the presence of God. So it's almost like he's saying to the congregation, okay, everyone raise your right hand. We're now going to take a vow. Why? In the presence of God. Okay? It's like in a courtroom when you raise your hand and say you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. So this, this is a serious matter where he's, He's bringing them, as it were, into the presence of God and saying, charge them, the congregation in Ephesus, charge them not to quarrel about words. So village, on the, on the authority of God's word, I charge all of us not to quarrel about words. This is a serious matter. And we'll see how serious it is. Why does quarreling about words do no good and ruin the hearers, what we see next? Well, what we see in the phrase, which does no good, you'll see that in the second half of verse 14, is actually a a word that means it has no lasting value. And so that's point number two. Wars of words have no lasting value. It does no one any good. There's no value to it. So the quarreling about words is wrong because nothing good comes from it. So you see how we have to be careful with saying, don't ever argue? If there's good that comes out of an argument or a debate, or a discussion, maybe use different words, that is a good thing, is it not? If good occurs, then that is a good thing. However, Paul is saying this war over words that is occurring in Ephesus is not doing anybody any good. It's not building up the church. It's not edifying. It is not helpful. And so we are to avoid those wars of words that have no lasting value. The second thing he says, and this is actually point number three in your notes, is wars of words are destructive. Wars of words are destructive. And I I think the word that the ESV uses here is is easy to overlook. So in verse 14, he says, Not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And I think, when when I think ruin, I think maybe like, Oh no, we left that bread in the back of the refrigerator and it's moldy. Oh, it's ruined. (laughs) Um, The word here in Greek is catastrophe. Okay? That tells you the seriousness of the, the word ruin here. So, when we think about a movie or a story that has to do with ruins, what are we, what are we going to see? We're going to see broken down buildings. We're going to see bombed out buildings. We're going to see things that are falling apart that are destroyed. And so the catastrophe here is that the, the hearers, those who hear the arguments, those who are around, maybe not even the ones directly involved in the argument, but those that are standing over here, There is the potential for catastrophe. There are catastrophic consequences to our wars of words. And we need to, we need to know that. We need to be aware of that. So I think especially adults, as we converse and what we're talking about and what we're arguing about, are there children around that don't understand what we're talking about? Context is very important as well. To know that, that that there are destructive consequences that are potentially in our words and our arguments. You must be careful. This word is the opposite of edification. It's not building up, it's tearing down. That is the opposite of what we want to see. And then there's there's this quote from a commentary that really struck me as a helpful blow to my pride. In the end, disputing about words seeks not the victory of truth, 
but the victory of the speaker. If, if the issue is I need to win because I need to be right, then we have crossed the line. If the issue is this is the truth and it needs to be defended, that is much different than look at me. I'm such a good arguer. I totally nailed that person. Do you see how they were crushed afterwards? It was great. <laughs> that's not good. That's not helpful. In fact, Paul says that's catastrophic. That is very, very dangerous for us to engage in wars of words that will ruin those that hear. And so we must not take it lightly that, well, I got a little heated up there. Oops. You know, th- there is a very real potential for destruction to occur, and we need to remind ourselves and be made aware of that. Well, as, as Paul moves from that uh, instruction to Timothy into verse 15, he kind of shifts into talking about the shame and unashamed quality of the worker. So look at verse 15. Paul tells Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And of course, this is the passage um, that we get awana from. Ashamed work... <laughs> Let's try that over again, huh? Approved workmen are not ashamed. Okay, approved workmen are not ashamed. Came from this passage. The founders of Awana used this passage to do that clearly in another version. But the, the issue here is of being ashamed. That Timothy is to do whatever it takes to not be ashamed. And so point, no, point C is to be unashamed. And we'll go through three points. To be unashamed, number one, takes eager diligence. To be unashamed takes eager diligence. Know what Paul tells Timothy in verse 15, do your best. Uh, that, that word in Greek might be, um, it has to do with zealous, be zealous for these things. Um, it, it means make every effort. Or the uh, New American Standard that some of you have says be diligent. And so the, the, the idea here is that it's going to take hard work for you to be unashamed as a worker for God. And, and we know this. So think about your job. Think about your job or students, your, your classes. There's plenty to be ashamed of if you don't work hard, correct? It, it's fairly simple to see what happens when I don't work hard. There are consequences and those consequences should shame us. Because if I don't work hard, the job doesn't get done. Or if I don't work hard, the job gets done, but not very well. If I don't study for the test and I do horribly on it, there, there is shame there. Why? Because you weren't diligent. You didn't, you didn't zealously seek after what could have kept you from being ashamed. So we are to eagerly, diligently approach this work that God has for us. Uh, if you have the King James, or a lot of you memorized this verse in the King James um, years and decades ago, um, and you memorize it as study to show yourself approved, uh, it's not really a helpful translation of the word because it, it's not saying study. Um, it, it's not saying, boy, you better get your nose in the book. Now, that might be part of what it means to be diligent, but the main call is to be zealous. It's a, it's a call to how you pursue this. And so we need to be diligent in how we do this. We need to have zeal about being God's worker so that we will not be unashamed. Uh, number two, to be unashamed means we fear God more than we fear man. 
It means that we fear God more than we fear man. This is important. Proverbs 29, 25 says, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So when, when we fear disapproval um, of our fellow man more than we fear the approval of God, we're in trouble. Um, I, I watched a, a clip of Rick Warren on Pierce Morgan's show, and Pierce Morgan was going after um, Rick Warren about homosexuality and about um, the Bible's clear, I believe, statements against um, homosexual lifestyle and practice. And Rick Warren, into the conversation at one point, said something like this. He said, I fear God more than I fear your disapproval. And I think we're wrestling with that as a culture, are we not? It, it might mean your job. Uh, it might mean a pay raise. It might mean um, friendships being broken. So if, if we're going to capitulate and fear man more than we fear God, then we will not be approved, as the word says here. Uh, we, will, we will have much to be ashamed of because we've placed man higher than God. So that the fear of man really makes man God and brings God down to man's level. It flip-flops these things. And so Paul says very, very carefully here, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. He could have told Timothy, do your best to present yourself to this crazy congregation as one approved. But, but that's, that's not the goal. The goal is not for Timothy to look out on the congregation and go, man, they love me. That's nice. And that's desired. And that's good. But the, the number one thing that a worker for God at any level, from pastor to any position in the church, is to fear God more than man and to seek his approval first. And, and we need to remember that in all the work that we do. So, so for those of you that are involved in any kind of ministry, um, with children, with adults, with behind the scenes, with on stage, whatever you're doing, uh, our, our approval that we seek needs to be from God and not from man. And it's easy to kind of slip into desiring the approval of man. I like it when you tell me I preached a good sermon. You know why I like it? Because I got your approval. I did a good job. And that appeals to what? To my pride. Um, and so, by the way, you, it's okay. You can tell me if I preached a good sermon. But you can tell me if I preached a bad one too. Um, but but the, the point is that we seek God's approval first. And all that we do. And, and he uses the word there, present yourself to God. So it's almost like bringing yourself into God's presence and saying, here I am. Here's what I've done. Here's how I've worked. And if you've approached that with eager diligence, then you will have nothing to be ashamed of in God's presence. You see the phrase, as one approved. It comes from a word that means to think. And so some people have translated this tried and true. So present yourself to God as one tested and come out on the other side approved, right? So it's, it's, um, it's, it's getting the stamp of approval. You, you, you made it, you did uh, what was required of you by the Lord, and you have nothing to be ashamed of. And this is something that we ought to seek. And number three, it means we take time to rightly handle God's word. Because he ends verse 15 by saying, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Number three, it means we take time to rightly handle God's word. Um, I think if I handed some people in different cultures a baseball bat, they might not know which side to hold it on. 
if I handed some people in some cultures a hockey stick, there's no knowledge of which side to hold. So perhaps the blade looks like a good thing to hold and wield the rest of the stick. But that's incorrectly handling the instrument. Right? And so, so Paul's admonition to Timothy is to rightly handle the instrument. In this case, the word of truth. So we must take care to rightly handle this. Some of you work with heavy machinery. If you don't rightly handle that, there's going to be some massive problems. Right? If you went to work with John and were, didn't know what you're doing on a backhoe, the, the potential consequences are pretty disastrous. Because, <laughs> because you are working with a serious machine. Folks, we're not, we're not playing around with this thing. We need to rightly handle it. We need to figure out where the grip is. We need to figure out how to rightly plug it in. We need to, we need to figure out how we're supposed to handle God's word and to do it rightly, to do it well. And, and if you're a visitor or if you're not a Christian and you're here with us this morning, you're, you're very welcome. Uh, and I want to tell you what our church believes about this book, about this, this word from God. This is what our church doctrinal statement says. We believe every word of the Bible is inspired by God and is without error in the original text and that it is absolutely trustworthy in all that it teaches. The Bible is the only divinely intended authority for the faith and practice of Christians. Accordingly, true Christian theology must be based solely upon Scripture. That's what our church holds to, and that's what we need to remember as we handle God's Word. So, so parents, when you handle God's Word with your little kids, it's an important thing to know how to rightly handle that. You start on a little deviation with a three-year-old, and we're headed for trouble. Uh, any of you that, that volunteer to help with our children, and you're involved in the teaching of God's Word, just because you're teaching kids does not mean you should take any less care with the Bible. We must be careful that we handle God's word rightly in whatever context that we're in. And the, the metaphor here from the original Greek, it, it literally means to cut straight. To cut a straight path. And so we, we want to, to, do, uh, to handle God's word in a way that will cut straight. That will, do, that will do a good job of doing the right work. So we handle God's word well in order that we may not be ashamed. The word of truth here, it could be the gospel or it could just refer to all of God's teachings. Whatever the case is, when we're handling God's word, we need to handle it with care and with, um, with understanding that it is the truth. Um, Phil Zergis, who's not here this morning, um, he's the, the chair of our elder board. He loves to go to um, Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And I'll just read it to you. It says this, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And so what we're called for in, in cutting straight and handling the word of truth rightly is we're called to not only just say it, but to follow up on the words that we say. <laughs> so if I'm teaching this morning and 10 minutes after the sermon's over, I am arguing about some, with somebody who criticized my sermon about one little word and we're just going at it. What does that do to the credibility of the sermon I just preached? It just tanks it. And so our lives are also to be lived in light of the Bible, in light of the word that we're to correctly handle. So the first thing that the unashamed worker does is that he handles God's words accurately and helpfully. 
The second thing that we see here in the, the next few verses is that the unashamed worker steers clear of unhealthy and destructive words. So that's uh, Roman numeral number two. The unashamed worker steers clear of unhealthy and destructive words. Now this is the second time he's told Timothy this in these two letters. If you go to 1 Timothy 6.20, it might be on the same page or a page back. He uses very similar words. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. In our passage, verse 16, Paul tells Timothy, but avoid irreverent babble. So he's to avoid it, or some translations say shun it. Uh, The word means to go around so as to avoid. So get away from it. That's why I use the words steer clear. See it, go around it. Avoid that. Because they're unhealthy and they are destructive. And again, this is in the present tense, which in Greek can mean continually. So it's not just one time, but constantly, continually avoid irreverent babble. Don't stop avoiding irreverent babble. Stay away from it. And we need to see here in in point A, to take action to avoid worthless and heretical conversations. We need to take action to avoid worthless and heretical conversations. Paul has told Timothy this multiple times in these letters. In 1 Timothy 1.6, he said, he used the word vain discussion. In 1 Timothy 4.7, he used irreverent, silly myths. Paul continues to come back to these things and tell Timothy to stay away, to avoid these kinds of discussions, conversations, and arguments. And so in order to take action, um, we see several things in what Timothy is supposed to do. Three things, in fact. Number one is he's supposed to notice the ungodly progression. The ungodly progression. Note, if you will, verse 16, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. The word is progress, but not in a good way. This is to progress downward. It's almost like getting caught in a whirlpool. You're making progress, but the wrong way. The progression will be more and more, and it's towards ungodliness. So, so, so check this out. The, the irreverent babble is not just worthless, as we said in verse 14, but it's also leading to more and more ungodliness. The trap here is to think that kind of just loose conversation is just kind of all right, depending on the context, and it's just not going to matter that much. Well, this is specifically tied to the false teachers who are getting the people in the church at Ephesus to just babble about things, godless things, things they don't understand. And, and just do it in a way that is, that is not worthy of God. And so it's going to lead people into more and more ungodliness. The church father Chrysostom said, It appears indeed to be a solitary evil, but see what evils spring out of it. The progression is to more and more ungodliness. So this is not just a little bit hurtful or, or momentarily stinging. This has the potential of moving people towards more and more ungodliness. And we've got to stay away from that. So, village, let's, let's realize in our conversations, in our arguments, in our discussions, that we must watch our words and be careful to note the potential within our arguments, that we potentially might be moving towards more and more ungodliness. We need to be very careful. The second thing we see here about these conversations is that it's a contagious sickness. Point number two, it's a contagious sickness. Verse 17, not only will it move people to more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. I looked up gangrene on the internet and immediately was sorry for it. I thought about showing pictures to kind of illustrate 
You don't need pictures to illustrate gangrene. Uh, gangrene is a, is a general term that it can be referred to as a cancer or it can be the specific disease of gangrene. Um, it basically happens when there's a blood supply cut off in a part of your body and the tissues begin to die because there is no blood. And so it, it's a disgusting thing and it spreads. It doesn't just stay. With, without medicine, without stopping it, the gangrene will spread. And this is the picture that Paul gives to the irreverent babble. It's not just going to stay in this little group. Right? We know that. We're a small church. Something gets said about somebody, boom, how did they find out about that? Well, it's contagious. And, and, and it, it spreads. And so we must be careful because it will lead to more ungodliness and it's a contagious sickness. And it will, it will cut off life to parts of the body. There's, there's no accident that Paul uses the metaphor of the body to, d- to talk about the church. So if, if the gangrene begins in the toes, watch out, knees. We've got to cut it off. We've got to stop the spread of the cancerous sickness of irreverent Babel. We must do what we can to stop this. And then Paul gives some examples of two men. And point number three, what these two men are doing is they're overturning fledgling faith. So point number three is overturns fledgling faith. Verse 18, or the end of verse 17, I'm sorry. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. And, and again, I think the ESV kind of, we can kind of read this word and I think when we hear upset, we're like, oh, are you upset? And I think that's a little mild, or at least that's how I think of upset. But the picture is more of a boat being upset, uh, of something being overturned, of destruction. Um, again, just like ruin meant catastrophe, um, this word has to do with overturning and destroying. And so the faith of some has been destroyed. So we are not just talking about a few little uh, tidbits of gossip that have spread around and haven't really done anything we're talking about something that has the potential to overturn this ship and to destroy to tear down and we see uh, here in, in point number b false teachers miss the mark false teachers miss the mark and, and paul goes so far as to name names and point number one under b is sometimes it is necessary to name names Sometimes it's necessary to name names. Pastor Ron did this uh, several months ago. Sometimes it is necessary to name the names of heretics who are leading others astray. Or as you see in verse 18, these men have swerved from the truth. So think about your driving or think about riding your bike. This is not a, a little course correction. This is a swerve. And not only that, but the word in Greek means it's a purposeful swerve. These men didn't accidentally, oh, I wasn't paying attention and now I'm teaching heresy. This is a word that means these men knew the straight and narrow path and they swerved off of it on purpose. And so they're named here. Hymenaeus, by the way, has already been named in 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, Paul went so far as to say that he had handed over Hymenaeus and Alexander to Satan. They may not learn to blaspheme. They may learn not to blaspheme. Hymenaeus is still at it in 2 Timothy. He has not been, he has not learned he is still one whose name needs to be named as one who is upsetting the faith of some. And here we get an exact 
teaching that they are doing that is false. And most of the time in First and Second Timothy, it's just been a general term, false teaching. But here we get exactly what at least part of the heresy is about. Notice verse 18. They swerved from the truth. How have they swerved from the truth? Saying that the resurrection has already happened. They're saying that the resurrection has already happened. So that doesn't give us exactly the whole teaching that's going on in Ephesus. But what it does say is that part of their false teaching was to deny that the resurrection was going to occur. Now this is not meant to say Jesus didn't rise from the dead. They're not denying that Jesus rose from the dead. What they're denying is is our future resurrection. The promise of our resurrection in the future has been denied by these men. And, and one of the ways that it could have happened, if we can take a guess by looking at some early church heresies, is that they would have emphasized so much the spiritual that they overlooked the physical. A lot of Greek thought, thought that this stuff inherently is evil, but the immaterial, the spiritual, is good. And so that actually to be freed from this physical body is actually to arrive at a much higher state. And this is one place where Christianity takes a decisive turn away from religions like Buddhism. It's, we're not looking forward to floating in the clouds, strumming on harps forever and ever, looking like Cupid. We are looking forward to a resurrection body. We get a new one of these, a better one of these, one that's not breaking down, amen? We get one that will last forever. And so we, we look forward to a key component of our future hope is that we will be resurrected. How? Like Jesus was. And, and we see in the New Testament that Jesus raises some people from the dead, but technically that's not resurrection. Because poor Lazarus had to die again. Right? Our resurrection is to be raised to die no more. That we, that we will never have to look toward death again. That when we receive our new bodies that it is a beautiful, glorious thing. The Christian faith is not merely dealing with the things unseen. It's dealing with our lives in the here and now. That's why the New Testament cares so much about what we do in our bodies. That's why sexual sin is so destructive, because it has to do with our bodies and our souls. This is the heresy that they were teaching, that the resurrection has already happened. Well, if it's already happened, what does that mean? Well, it means I've been spiritually reborn, perhaps. Perhaps I've already, rised, I've already arrived at perfection because I've been resurrected. Uh, the point here is that they are totally going against Paul's teaching. I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 really quickly. So please turn there. Back a few books. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul spends 58 verses talking about the importance of the resurrection to the Christian faith. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to take a look at verses 12 through 19. Follow along, please. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Okay, so you see the connection? There's, there's, a, there's an, an event where Jesus is raised from the dead, and then there's an event tied to that that is the resurrection of the dead, a general resurrection. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And here's the, here's the implication. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. 
then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here is the brutal truth. If Christ did not rise from the dead and connected to that, if there is no resurrection for us, then we are to be made fun of and pitied as stupid, foolish people. Our hope rests in the fact that Jesus died and is not there anymore, that he rose again and is alive, seated at the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns, and he is coming again. Bodily, in that resurrection body, as a promise, as a down payment, as our hope that we too will be raised from the dead. This is what the false teachers in Ephesus were denying, that there is a future resurrection. There's nothing for these Ephesian Christians to look forward to now because it's already happened. There's no future hope. Timothy is supposed to go against this teaching. Donald Guthrie, a New Testament scholar, said, Christianity without a resurrection ceases to be a living faith. It is that important that Jesus rose from the dead. And it is also important to realize that Jesus rose from the dead. Then the promise to us is that we will also be raised as well. And that's the hope. That's the hope of all of us who have lost loved ones, who are Christians, They will be raised. The promise is that we will see them again. And not only that, but we'll see them again in a new body. It's going to be infinitely better when we see our loved ones again in the new heavens and the new earth. We're given resurrection bodies like Jesus' body. And there we will serve the Lord forever. And if we strum on harps, they'll be real physical ones, not spiritual ones. And if we interact with each other, it will not just be as spirits floating through the sky. We will be walking and talking and greeting and touching That is the resurrection hope of the Christian. Well, lastly, we move to the last verse where Paul reminds Timothy, he helps Timothy, he encourages Timothy in the midst of all this heresy and strife and blasphemy and church splitting. In the midst of all this, is God in control? What is going on? I'm supposed to, Timothy thinks, I'm supposed to go in here and fix these things and teach the right and treat the truth and handle God's word correctly. And I think Paul leaves him with some good words. And so, uh, Roman numeral number three, the unashamed worker trusts God's sovereignty and lives accordingly. The unashamed worker trusts God's sovereignty and lives accordingly. Verse 19. But, in the midst of swerving, in the midst of irreverent babble, in the midst of ruining the hearers by the arguments, in the midst of all these things, Paul tells Timothy, but... God's firm foundation stands. Listen up. When there's heresy and blasphemy, God is not wringing his hands in heaven trying to figure out plan B. God is not trying to figure out how to get around these doggone brilliant thinkers. God is the trustworthy one. His firm foundation stands. And better than that, the Lord knows those who are his. So Timothy is in the midst of guys that said they were elders, guys that said they were teachers, guys that that seem to have been saved from a life of paganism, who are now turning this church back towards, um, away from God. And in doing so, Timothy probably doesn't know who he can trust anymore, right? If the elder board has split, if guys that were once united are now divided, Timothy's probably suspicious. He's probably thinking, who can I trust? And in the end, God's word to Timothy is, God knows who are his. 
God's not up there trying to figure out who he saved and who he hasn't saved yet. God knows. And so the picture is a firm foundation. And so um, there's been debate about what God's firm foundation actually is. What does it refer to? And I think it's probably a reference to the church. Um, in 1 Timothy, uh, Paul referred to the church as the pillar and buttress of the truth. Um, and that the church is this thing that not, we're not building the church, folks. <laughs> like, man, we are just a great congregation. Look how well we're doing. Praise us. The, the, the picture here is that Jesus is building his church. Jesus is building it. And because he's building it, the gates of hell will not prevail. If you and I are building it, we have no hope against the gates of hell. But because Jesus is building Village Bible Church, and because Jesus is building his church, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God's firm foundation stands. And, and it says this, there's a seal Bearing this seal. And, and the seal here is, it's good for us to know that on buildings in the ancient Greek and Roman world, they would actually sometimes punch a seal into the foundation. And, and the point was to say, like, ownership. Whose house is this? Well, look at the seal. And then that'll, that'll tell you whose it is. Um, if it was a government building, it might reflect the seal of Caesar or the seal of the, the local lord to, to designate whose this is. So the fact that there is a seal on God's firm foundation means he owns it. He stamps it. He knows those who are his, is the next phrase. The second phrase is, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And and these um, phrases probably go back to Numbers 16, where um, uh, the Levite Korah led a rebellion against Moses. And Moses basically said, let's show up tomorrow in front of God. We'll all have little plates of fire. And whoever God says is approved, then God will show that. And the next morning they do, and fire comes out and consumes people, and the ground opens up and eats the people, and, and it's like, oh, hey, God doesn't like them, and he approves of Moses. Okay, so that's the, that's the clarity. And so this is what we get here. God knows whose are his. He knows whose are his. But there's also a call to the people. So, so there, there's this, this the thing we see throughout Scripture, that God is totally sovereign, and man is totally responsible. And, and we have issues. Anybody ever had a debate about that? God is sovereign. He's in control. And man is responsible. Look at, look at what are we called to do. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord, what? Carry your Bible around? Show people your Christian certificate? What are you supposed to do? Depart from iniquity. How are we known to be Christians? We leave sin. We turn away from sin. We repent. And so this is the call. God's firm foundation stands. He knows those who are his, and those who are his depart from iniquity. So the call is for us is to trust the sovereign God and to act accordingly. If God has saved us, he's not saved us just from something. He saved us to something as well. From sin and death to the abundant life. And that's what we are to pursue. As as we finish today, I, I just want to remind us from God's word of the importance of words, that words matter. Listen to some of these scriptures. Psalm 119.25, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Jesus himself told his disciples, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. We will be judged by the things that we say. 
There's a poem that was helpful for me this week. It goes like this. A careless word may kindle strife. A cruel word may wreck a life. A bitter word may hate instill. A brutal word may smite and kill. A gracious word may smooth the way. A joyous word may light the day. A timely word may lessen stress. A loving word may heal and bless. We have a certain power in our words, and we're to speak those well. And ultimately, we know from John 1.14 that not only do we have God's word in the Bible, but the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this word, Jesus Christ, is coming again. And at that time, my question to us today is, will you be ashamed at his coming? Or will you be approved knowing whom you have believed in? We pray that we will know that we have been approved by God by the words that we speak and the words that we say and the words that we accept. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to come before you thanking you for this warning that we might be reminded that what we say matters and how we speak matters and the content of our conversations matter. Lord, remind us of that and, and, and keep us from destroying lives from overturning lives due to our words. Help us to be cautious. But Lord, also help us to speak life from our words. Help our our words to be um, the kind that build people up and encourage, that point people to you and not ourselves. And Lord, most of all, may we turn to your words because they are trustworthy. They are true. They are the only words that we can trust 100% to guide our lives and our decisions. So Lord, this morning, by your Holy Spirit, may you make this church a church that understands the importance of words. May we might live in the light of that. That the words that we say might represent you well. And the words that we say might lead others to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.